from, for the time being, at least Crystal Park Baptist Church, Benoni, where I serve the local church as staff caring for the souls of men and changing light bulbs as and when necessary, because that's what pastors do. A shout out to everyone tuning in from Benoni. It's good to have you with us. But we do recognize that we have folk literally listening in from every single corner of South Africa. Um, I love being with you guys on Fridays. I, I really do. Um, Fridays are a special time for me. Uh, I, I've made friends over the course of the last year with folk, particularly from Vitbank. I know we've got a number of listeners there. And Cape Town, a number of people speak in from there. And of course, Klebecha, um, we have a number of people uh, that dial in and speak to us from there. It's good to have each and every one of you uh, with us today. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Folk, uh, even as you're listening in, now would be a great time to begin engaging with us. Of course, Table Talk, the show this morning, uh, is a show where we answer your questions and answers live on air. And so as I speak to my guest, who is Parmesh, uh, as I engage with him, please do send through your questions that you might have or comments that you have on your mind. How might you do that, you ask right now? Well, if you are on Facebook, um, the Radio Pulpit, the Radio Console Facebook page. You can comment and engage with us in the live stream in the comments section. If you're on WhatsApp or Telegram, he has the telephone number. You can write it down now, 082-657-2729. Let me repeat that, 082-657-2729. If you're on Twitter, you can tweet with us at 657am. And you can dial into studio and chat with myself and my guest who I'm about to introduce on the following number, 012-334-1322. Right now would be a great time to drop into the comments or on WhatsApp or on Facebook a hi there and a where you're from so that I get an idea of where the audience this morning is dialing in from. I do want to give a shout out to on the controls this morning, pressing all the buttons and making sure that the lights stay on. Uh, our co-laborer in this ministry, DK, thank you so much for being with us this morning, mate. Let me introduce um, the um, uh, who I'm going to be interviewing this morning. Um, it is Parmesh. Parmesh is a pastor from Witchwood Baptist Church, uh, a church literally down the road, over the hill, across the N1, uh, down a couple more percent <laughs> turns, <laughs> and uh, yeah, a, a little bit away uh, from Crystal Park. But um, you are on the east side of Johannesburg. You are in Ikuraleni, I think, uh, which would still qualifies as Ikuraleni. Um, and so over the years, I've had a really good um, working relationship as a peer with Parmesh. I've seen him come into ministry, and I've enjoyed his counsel. Uh, on a number of topics, we've often phoned to bemoan what's going on in the church and try and figure out together um, how to solve the local church's problems. And I've always enjoyed the counsel that Parmesh has given me. Um, Parmesh, I, I know I've left a couple of things out. You're a husband of one wife. You are a father and you are a member of the Baptist Northern Association's um, council, uh, executive council. Maybe you just want to flesh in some of the details and describe the church that you serve. Um, and then after that, we can introduce the topic that we're going to be talking about today. Thanks, Mark. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a real privilege, I feel, to be a part of this. I am, uh, as you said, the, the pastor of Witchwood Baptist Church. It really is a church on the final frontier of the East Rand, uh, just 
sort of three streets above us, you enter into Johannesburg. Uh, my wife, Bronwyn, and I have been married now for uh, four years. Uh, interestingly enough, I uh, started at the church before I was married. Uh, so if you follow Luther's uh, words, I would have been married to the church before I was married to my wife. Um, we're, uh, we're expecting our, our second uh, child uh, just uh, early next year, so we're really excited about that. Our first uh, boy is, has just turned two, and he's full of energy and, and lots of life. So we're thankful to the Lord for his goodness to us as a family. Uh, I also serve as the uh, chairman of the Baptist Northern Association, that is uh, an association of Baptist churches uh, in what used to be the old Transvaal region. So that includes Northwest uh, Limpopo and Gauteng as well. So uh, trying to serve not just the local church, but the greater body as well. Well, maybe just talk about the local church for just a moment um, more, uh, if you wouldn't mind. Um, which would, how, how would you describe her in terms of uh, her demographic, in terms of maybe um, uh, what she looks like on any given Sunday, but what she sounds like in terms of maybe your orthodoxy um, and also like what she feels like? Uh, just describe the church to us uh, so that we get an idea. So, which would Baptist Church, this is really interesting if you look at the history of the church. The church existed before the N3 northbound highway uh, was built. So the church um, was, was part of this community that sort of spanned across uh, where the highway is now. And over the years that, of course, has changed with um, the infrastructure, uh, Bedford View, uh, no longer being a farming community, but a, a, a business one, uh, has seen a great change in the life of the church. Uh, so uh, in terms of the demographic, which would Baptist would be a, a multicultural, multi-generational, multi-ethnic congregation um, that reflects, I think, well, the uh, community around us. So we have uh, some of our members who come in from Bedford View, we have other members who come in from Jewel Street and um, from uh, around the community as well. So it's, it's a really, I find Witchwood Baptist Church to be a really warm congregation. Uh, we notice that uh, from the time that we even started at the church, uh, folk are warm and welcoming, they, and they really do love the Lord. You don't get a sense of, well, there's a facade here or, or, or anything like that. I'm just going to ask you to scoot a little bit closer to the mic, okay. um, just in terms of pickup. That's great. And uh, so on a Sunday, on a Sunday morning, I suppose we would we would not be too different compared to Crystal Park Baptist. I would say that there's sort of five facets regarding our service. We read the word, we sing the word, we pray the word, we preach the word. And we see the word in the ordinances. Hey Amen. So. I've said that so many times, even even on on the show, uh, that I have. I imagine that the listeners are getting quite familiar with those <laughs> with those phrases. I like them a lot. I think borrowed probably from non-Marxy material. Marks, yeah. yeah. Okay. Excellent. And and I, I mean, in terms of your your orthodoxy, I, I, you're a graduate from the London Theological Seminary. Does that make you a Reformed Baptist, like, out of the gate? 
So yeah, I think I think those labels might mean different things to different people. That's fair enough. So uh, I'm I'm a bit of an anomaly. So I I uh, I did my I would say my formative theological training in London uh, at London Theological Seminary, and upon returning to South Africa, I I just finished my master's degree through the Baptist Theological College. So uh, a little bit of of overlap there in terms of uh, where I've studied. Um, Personally, I would I would say that I'm I would maybe use the word conservative Baptist, so uh, meaning that I would hold to God's sovereign work when it comes to salvation, uh, His holiness, man's sinfulness, and the need for our Savior. Mm. It comes as a gift uh, that He gives us by His Holy Spirit. Okay. Uh, so, and and again, so that I would say that would be the central sort of tenets of of my beliefs. And then, of course, that would express itself out in the life of the church. And I think that's always where the, the greatest challenge comes. Where, how does this look like in, in practice? Yeah. So while we might hold to those five central facets regarding reading the word, praying the word, and so on, how we do that might look slightly different compared to Crystal Park. And, I mean, let's just for a moment just talk around, because today we're going to be talking about corporate prayer. We're about to introduce the topic um, and begin the discussion uh, regarding what corporate prayer is and what it looks like in the life of the church. Um, but but how would you describe maybe your worship on any given Sunday? You've already mentioned these elements of worship. Um, would you go so far as to say that you guys um, uh, look regulative on a Sunday? In other words, you're drawing each one of the elements of anything that happens in your Sunday worship from Scripture uh, and then applying it in 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 whatever way, uh, shape, or form that looks? Um, or are you a hybrid, um, kind of evangelical conservative? Um, you're certainly not normative. I've actually preached in your pulpit before. Yeah. So we would, and again, this, I don't want to get too much into that distinction, but when it comes to worship, there's two sort of forms that exist. The first is the regulative principle, and that principle says that we worship God according to uh, how he has revealed he would like to be worshipped in Scripture. So we would, we would read the word and we would derive principles from that to determine uh, how the Lord would like us to worship him. Uh, the other principle is called the normative principle. And that would say that so long as something isn't clearly prohibited in Scripture, we are permitted then to worship the Lord in that way. Uh, so as a, as a church, we would hold on to the regulative principle and we would uh, say that we worship the Lord as he has revealed in Scripture. And so uh, then we sort of move on from there into the means of, of grace, which then forms those five facets which we looked at. And so prayer, I would uh, want to say, forms a, a, a significant part of that. Uh, and of course, different churches will practice that differently. Some churches may have prayer meetings at a distinct time in their in their church calendar. Other churches would have a time of open prayer uh, during their service on a Sunday morning. Uh, some churches may even allow different folk to come up and pray, representing the congregation during that time. And, and I suppose for most of us in that category, we would, we would be familiar with the pastoral prayer which would take place in the in the church you know it, it is um 
it's so helpful just to hear you talking with clarity in terms of what worship would look like, where you're drawing the principles for your worship from, and then describing also um, the variety uh, in terms of application that might be um, that might be put down by different ch- in different church contexts, whether that be a corporate time for worship uh, for prayer within the context of the local church open prayer, which we haven't actually ever practiced at Crystal Park where everybody's praying together, um, uh, prayer meetings, those kinds of things. We're going to be touching on all of that um, shortly uh, as, we, as we get into the meat and into the bones of this discussion uh, around uh, corporate prayer. And, and I want us to introduce your, um, introduce your, your thesis. Um, I, I want us to start to engage with some of the very real uh, questions which you raise, particularly uh, toward the end of your thesis. And then I'd love us if we can go back and work through actual texts of Scripture in the Pentateuch uh, which relate to corporate prayer. And then if you can connect the dots for us uh, towards the end of the show in terms of what this looks like, how, what our, our Christopraxis or our <laughs> orthopraxis should be as we get to the end. Before we get there, though, I would like to pull in another uh, participant, uh, a regular on the show, um, our friends from 4SA. Um, we are joined this morning uh, by Daniela Ellebeck, um, who is an attorney uh, who is um, uh, involved uh, with 4SA. Um, 4SA was in the Johannesburg High Court last week from Monday through to Wednesday to challenge the constitutionality of the state's lockdown regulations, um, uh, the complete ban on religious gatherings. And the application is supported by various churches and faith organizations, Crystal Park certainly being one of them. Um, And in actual fact, I was happy to join um, on the live view on YouTube and watch the proceedings for the first two days. I found it fascinating. The first day was 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 so technical. Uh, I thought my head was going to explode. And then the, the second day actually felt a little bit like LA Law, which maybe dates me a bit. <laughs> but Daniela, it is so good to have you uh, with us this morning uh, and to chat to you. Uh, thank you so much for joining. We do know that this case has to do with the state's restraint. Uh, regulations, but specifically, what was it about? What happened in court uh, last week? Thank you, Mark. Always a pleasure to talk to you and your viewers. Um, So, Mark, this case was specifically about the constitutionality of the state's total ban on religious gatherings across the country earlier this year. Now, listeners may remember that during um, the first bit of 2021, you could go to a casino, but you weren't allowed to go to church. Now, even if we're no longer um, under such a complete ban, it is important that the court decides this issue um, because the court needs to decide whether the state's actions, you know, in saying that casinos can be open but churches must be closed, were constitutional and lawful. Um, And if the court finds that, you know, the the state acted unconstitutionally and therefore, you know, they can't, put such a complete ban on faith-based gatherings when the economic sector is open, then the state can't act this way again in the future. So that's why this case is important. Now, the case started last week on Monday and it ran through, like you said, on Tuesday, the second day, where senior advocate, um, advocate Adrian Buerta did an excellent job 
of arguing for his ace case and we could not be happier with how he represented the millions of people of South Africa's faith community whose constitutional rights were violated when the state banned them from attending church services while simultaneously allowing people to go to casinos, gyms, restaurants and so forth. And the case finished last week, Wednesday afternoon, so it ran for three days. Um, with advocates Richard Crompton and Reg Willis presenting Forrest's answers to the state's arguments it raised. So what were the main points um, by the state, the main points of argument in the case? So the state's advocate, Mark, spent a lot of time and energy arguing that the court should not hear this case um, because the current lockdown regulations do not you know, prohibit church services. Now, fortunately for his ACE legal team made it crystal clear to the court that it is quite possible that the minister may impose such a total ban again in future. And therefore it is important that the court hears this case and makes this decision. Furthermore, uh, state's advocate argued that religious gatherings such as church services should be seen as social events and therefore different from meetings that play, take place in the economic sector. <clears throat> It is personally for me unclear how, even if religious gatherings were seen as social gatherings, people can meet at a restaurant for a social meal, but not at church. Now, remember that religious community is actually one of the communities that has constitutional rights, you know? Restaurants don't have constitutional rights, churches do. Yes, I mean, Anybody that's listening, and uh, we, we had quite a build-up to the court case as well, I, I would imagine that there is some interest amongst the, the, the listeners, even this morning, uh, to maybe go and catch up and to see what a South African court case looks like. Um, I certainly was curious, that was what drew me, and then I kind of got hooked because it was also <laughs> fascinating and, and relevant to everything that I do. Um, I, I can recommend going and checking out uh, YouTube. It was streamed in HD 720. And on YouTube, you can actually watch it at two times normal speed, <laughs> which I would recommend the layman. Then you don't have to spend four hours, um, you know, going through stuff. You can spend two hours minus the breaks, which were quite long as well. Um, but where are these in terms of, where are they? How, how can people access them? Where's the repository for the cases? So Mark, um, all three days of arguments uh, before court from all the various parties um, were live streamed, as you said, and then they were also recorded. Now, 4SA actually made the effort to load these recordings on 4SA's YouTube channel and make it available to the public. But I wanna say that um, because we know that like the first day was legally technical and the action only started happening on the second day, we actually also edited um, these videos to edit out the breaks and to actually only edit um, for his A's arguments so that you see the- That is so A's. cool. Yes. <laughs> That's brilliant. So, because um, I mean, the second day, like you said, was very exciting. And that was when um, senior advocate Adrian Buerta argued um, our matter presenting our arguments. And then again, the third day was very exciting with um, advocates Richard Crompton and Reg Willis answering all the state's arguments. So we actually edited it so that all the breaks are out and you only see those bits. Um, and these are also available on our YouTube channel, um, Freedom of Religion South Africa or 4SA. Um, so listeners can just watch 4SA's legal arguments and our answers to the state's arguments if they are interested, which significantly cuts out a lot of time. Yeah. 
Uh, I, I would definitely recommend that. I, I haven't seen the abridged or edited version, but I can imagine that that, 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 that that is excellent and well done for doing that. I'm very interested when the court might reach a decision. I mean, we're heading up to a fourth wave. I can see um, infection rates are going up and, and whatnot. I, I expect at some stage our president to call a family meeting. Um, uh, Daniela, when might we actually see the court reaching a decision in this matter? So, Mark, we don't know how long um, the court will take before reaching a judgment, um, but the judge did assure us that he would attend to it as soon as possible. So we are hopeful that we would actually get a judgment um, before the end of the year. Okay. No, I mean, that's very helpful. Um, many listeners, uh, even to the show, but also people involved on 4SA, uh, website and in the organization. What are folk doing to support the case right now? What can we do? How can people get involved? Mark, um, it's extremely hard to say how the judge will find. Um, I mean, Forest A's legal team put up the best case we could have imagined putting up. They did such a stellar job. Um, but we would also ask listeners and viewers to please keep praying for the judge to have a clear, unbiased mind and an understanding of the issues, particularly the importance of um, faith and religious freedom as he prepares his judgment. So please pray for the judge. And then listeners can also make financial donations to this cause. Um, 4SA is entirely dependent on voluntary donations. So listeners' generosity will make a huge difference in financing this case substantial legal costs. And listeners who feel that they want to give uh, can visit 4SA's website at www.forsa.org.za and click on the Donate Now button at the top of the page. Um, if I can ask that they just please reference their donation as lockdown to make sure that their donation gets allocated to the specific case. Well, I do want to point uh, listeners to the 4SA website. That's www.4sa.org.za where they can sign up for the 4SA newsletter and alerts, which basically will keep them updated in terms of this case and many of the other issues that you guys are involved on in terms uh, of uh, the relationship between church and state. And of course, uh, folk can also find you now here on YouTube as well as on Facebook. Just search for Freedom of Religion SA. Daniela, thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's always good to have you with us. Always a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. God bless. Bye. Well, Pomesh, uh, uh, um, even as we take that break, I mean, very relevant to South Africa right now. Uh, this discussion regarding lockdown regulations and how the church gathers and when the church gathers. Um, in actual fact, I'm guessing that this kind of conversation has consumed much of our pastoral efforts and care over the last couple of years, maybe at the expense of some of the other things that we as pastors really do need to be concentrating mm. on uh, and critical elements in terms of the life of the church. Um, I, you, re you recently, and now we'll start to discuss the topic under consideration for today. Uh, you recently completed a master's thesis, which you have successfully defended um, <laughs> on uh, the subject of corporate prayer. And I'm, I'm, I'm really shorthanding it. We'll give a full discussion or maybe you want to um, say the, the entire kind of uh, mouthful uh, of what your thesis was on. 
Um, but what you were looking at is one of the elements of corporate worship, one of the, the elements that, that make church church and make what we do on any given Sunday as a corporate entity um, really give it value um, before the eyes of God in terms of the way that he has um, revealed himself in his word uh, anyway. Um, what, what drew you to the subject of corporate prayer? Um, or why did you choose to place your emphasis here? Um, what is the entire ambit that you were looking at so that kind of will be the, the, the title of your uh, master, master's dissertation? Um, and, and if you had to distill it into just a, a, a kind of a one paragraph or two paragraph um, overview, um, how would you go about distilling it? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, the subject of prayer is one in which I think I've wrestled with for a number of years now. It, it hasn't just been a two-year project for me. Uh, maybe a little bit of background. I come from a, a, a Hindu religious uh, uh, family. Our, our entire family, by God's grace, was saved when I was in matric. Wow. And when I was living in that, prayer, we might say, uh, played a large role. Um, there were rituals we needed to perform. We would mm. go to temple, the mm. Hindu equivalent of a church, and we would, we would pray. And so when we became Christians, this whole dynamic of prayer took on new meaning and new life. And yet, I always felt as though I was missing something. Maybe I didn't understand it. Maybe I, I wasn't a very good prayer. And so there was this exploration that began. What does it mean to pray? What does it mean to call out to God? Yes. And so that was a, that's something that happened with me personally as I, as I came to faith and as I wanted to grow in my faith. But then also being a part of the church, there were, there were these prayer meetings that would take place. And I would go along to that, and I was incredibly nervous when I, I went to that. What, what was the expectation? Am I expected to pray and say something? Uh, what do I say? Do I have to write down my prayers and come here before the time? It, it was really a scary experience for me. And then just sort of growing in that and being discipled through it. And then reading stories about prayer in church history and the revivals that took place, it was remarkable to see just how influential prayer was at, at times when God seemed to move in supernatural ways. But then comparing that to what I see more recently in churches, I mean, prayer meetings are perhaps the least attended meeting in the church. And that was concerning. How sad is that in that it is such a universally accepted um, statement that prayer meetings really are amongst the least attended activities um, in local churches. Uh, I mean, it really is an issue. Yeah. And so, I, I, again, sort of wrestling through that and, and wanting to come to an answer. And I, I suppose one could go down the route of, of surveying the New Testament, which is something which I did. If you read the book of Acts in particular, mm. it seems as though prayer is a powerful force in the life of the early church. Uh, in Acts chapter 1, they're meeting and praying together. In Acts chapter 2, when the 3,000 are saved, they devoted themselves, we read, 
to the prayers. It, it just takes place. There's this natural development that uh, the church seems to embrace when it comes to corporate prayer. But interestingly enough, as you read the New Testament, apart from the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, there isn't really any extended portion that devotes itself, itself to, to teaching on prayer. Mm. It, it just seems to be assumed. Jesus, of course, gives it new meaning as we call out to God as our Father. We might say the Lord's Prayer gives us a general structure for our prayers, but there's no extended teaching on that. And so that's what led really to this dissertation, to study the foundation of corporate prayer as is found uh, primarily in the Pentateuch. Uh, so the topic title in its full length is a historic redemptive reading of corporate and representative prayer in the Pentateuch towards a covenantal Christopraxy for Baptist churches. <laughs> so it, it is a bit of a, a, a mouthful, uh, but uh, it, it really is a, just reading corporate prayer in the Pentateuch to help us understand how we should practice that in the, the church today. So what happened is I... Uh I heard that you had written a dissertation. I try and make it a, a habit to once a month um, read either a master's or doctoral uh, dissertation. Um, not, not because I'm academic, but because I find that when I read the writings of another, particularly in an academic field, you, you get the distillation of what maybe a hundred people say on a particular subject. I, I went and I looked at your biography. It is extensive. Um, and yet you wrote maybe 200 pages, uh, which was very easy to read on a topic which is incredibly relevant uh, for the local church. And so uh, I just find it uh, kind of a, a neat cheat. Um, I, I read, uh, for instance, Doug Forsyth wrote on Ecclesiastes. When I preached through Ecclesiastes, I read his doctoral dissertation. Uh, Lance Lawton, who's currently listening in, uh, wrote a fascinating dissertation on, on Hebrews. Um, uh, and particularly, if I remember, uh, it was with just teeny tiny little words uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, in the book of Hebrews, uh, which I just felt, uh, I just found absolutely fascinating. His attention to detail and statistics uh, was, was great. I found your work um, quite unique, um, and I've read quite a few dissertations over the last while, in that it was incredibly accessible, very, very organized, and very balanced in the way that you approached um, both the um, the, the problem, which you really highlight at the end of your dissertation and then give your, give your answers, um, but also the exegesis, which uh, you kind of open up uh, in the beginning. Uh, I found it very balanced, even in your approach to the passages, very balanced approach to dealing with each passage, um, very structured. Uh, you, you clearly have a very structured mind, Pomish, and, and I enjoyed that thoroughly. It was, it was, it was actually easy to read. Uh, and yet, uh, you made some some very, very valuable points and have actually changed the way that I pray. Um, even in my family prayers, uh, since I read it, I, I've realized over the last couple of days, um, my, my, my prayers with my children and with my wife are enriched. And so I just want to commend you on, on an excellent work. Where I'd like us to start off 
with is the practical significance. Uh, you go about um, on page 174 if you want to find it yourself, <laughs> but you go about fleshing out um, a number of issues within the local church which you say have significantly impacted the way that we are praying as local churches. I thought that each one of these was well stated. You've gone to more than just one source in order to highlight them. Um, and I'd like us to go through them, just talk to them in a, in a little bit of detail in order to really establish the problem. Uh, and then once we've established the problem, I'd love us to go back and deal with some of the texts because you dealt with those very comprehensively um, at the beginning of your work. Uh, the first one that you highlight, um, and it's off the work of a guy called Frizzle, um, and you highlight five of the issues that he raises. And the first one that you raise is that the church moves towards programs and activities. Less time is uh, available for prayer. You want to maybe just flesh that out as you've seen that in the life uh, of local churches. Yeah, I think um, maybe just to comment and say, I think sometimes it's easy for us to pinpoint observable things um, because it's what we see it's what we experience mm. but underneath all these things is a, is a deeper issue and, and of course that's you know when we when we parent we realize that the actions of our children reflect what's in their hearts and so often what makes parenting challenging is we don't just deal with behavior we want to deal with heart issues the selfishness and pride that lies behind that and so I think it's true with some of the observations that we'll make now is there's a, there's a heart issue behind why, what we see on the front end of this. And I think when we come to things like uh, a movement towards programs and activities, there is a sense of self-sufficiency which uh, we may be prone towards because Reflected in this is perhaps the sense of saying, if we do this program, if, if we have a discipleship program, this is the solution to some of the problems we're seeing in, in the church or, or moving people towards church membership or helping them grow in, in maturity. Again, let me say that programs are not wrong. There's nothing inherently wrong with them. I think they have a, a, a right and proper and helpful place in the, in the life of the church. But if, if our self-sufficiency mm. is reflected in our attitude towards programs, there's something wrong there. Because ultimately we need to realize that growth as a Christian is a spiritual work. Yes. And, and it's, it's the Holy Spirit that does something within the believer, illuminating scripture, bringing about godly convictions. It's the spirit that does that. The spirit uses the word, yes, but prayer must accompany it. The growth of the church cannot primarily rely upon programs and activities or models. The growth of the church relies upon God. You mention in your work that um, programs and activities, whilst they're not inherently bad, in actual fact, many of them are good, but what they sometimes do is crowd out um, the basic, simple activities that we as believers ought to be, the means of grace, mm -hmm. uh, whether it be prayer, scripture reading, um, and fellowship with one another. Uh, 
in, in, I mean, I'm just, I'm just interested right off the bat as we, as we talk about the problems that are, are creating this, the, this, this, this eclipse of prayer, you know, this eclipse on prayer. So prayer is darkened uh, in churches and has lost its prominence. Um, what, are you, what might you suggest to churches as they look out on 2022? Um, what are some of the ways that churches can maybe combat the proliferation of these kinds of programs and activities that are non-core but somewhat helpful? Um, Yes, I think with with this uh, dissertation, one of the things which I wanted to do was simply to make pastors aware of it. I think sometimes we can simply forget. Uh, There's that that hymn, um, the early dew of morning has passed away at noon. Tell me the old, old story. Mm. I think that is sometimes reflected when it comes to these most basic truths. They can sometimes be foreshadowed because they're not high on our priority list. So I would simply want to suggest to uh, anyone who's thinking about the subject that the fact that you're thinking is a good thing Mm. (laughs) because you're aware of it. Uh, I would simply say to anyone who's thinking about this, and of course, let me also uh, say that as a church, we haven't gotten this right. This is one of those areas in which we, I believe, need to grow in. Uh, And just to say, be deliberate. Uh, If you fail to plan, you plan to fail. And so in your church calendar, set aside time where you call your people to pray. Now, the beginning of the year is an excellent time to do that, where schools are resuming, work's sort of just starting off. And perhaps even before you start your programs, to simply call the church together and commit yourselves to the Lord. Mm. Unless the Lord builds the house, the workers labor in vain. And so it's a a wonderful opportunity for the church to come together and and to seek the face of God as they move forward. And of course, I would even go so far as to suggest perhaps even do that once a term. Mm. If you're a church that has a lot of programs and there's a lot going on, it's again, it's a good thing. But perhaps to start off the term by saying, as a church family, let's pray together. Let's ask the Lord to go before us in the term that lies ahead. You mentioned being deliberate and you mentioned like adding prayer and corporate prayer into your program deliberately. I think that those are very well-made points. Um, one of the things that you also fleshed out and highlighted was the, cent- or the, um, the importance of pastors uh, in this process. And, and one of the failings being that they're not confident to lead corporate prayer meetings. Um, to the pastor who hasn't seen corporate prayer well-led or doesn't have a... Um, or, or, or doesn't have maybe, um, hasn't read um, the theological underpinnings of corporate prayer, maybe doesn't know where to start, um, where, where would you point a man? Because that, that is a significant uh, problem and a, and a very real obstacle uh, to vibrant corporate prayer. Mm. Uh, if you're a pastor thinking about this, I would suggest uh, looking at Charles Spurgeon's book, Only a Prayer Meeting, Yes. So that title, only a prayer meeting, was uh, someone visited Spurgeon's church. And, uh, of course, we know Churgeon, Spurgeon's church had a, a prominent prayer meeting. And well, this, just describe that because many of the listeners might not know Okay, that. so Charles Spurgeon was the uh, pastor of uh, the Metropolitan Tabernacle in, uh, in London. And uh, it's really interesting as you look at the auditorium, 
you have uh, below the main auditorium uh, a, a hall, and in this hall there used to be weekly prayer meetings. In, in fact, some people would even pray there while Charles Spurgeon preached. And uh, Charles Spurgeon called that the boiler room. That was yes. where the, the people would pray for him. And uh, there was a visitor that came along, and, uh, and he said to Charles Spurgeon, well, oh, this is only a prayer meeting. And uh, Charles Spurgeon then took that phrase and then uh, made this book or wrote this book in response to that. Because some people do think about prayer like that. Well, yes. it's, it's just prayer or it's, it's only prayer. It's not really this important or significant thing. Uh, and Charles Spurgeon said that the prayer meeting is the graceometer of the church. One of the clearest signs of God being in a church community is the church praying. One of the signs that God has removed himself from the church prayer meeting is the lack of prayer. I, I, have, a, I have a friend in Zambia, uh, 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 Francis, and he, he quotes uh, Ian Bounds uh, once a day. He puts an <laughs> Ian Bounds quote onto his Facebook. And I, I, re, I reposted one of them yesterday or the day before, um, basically saying um, that the pastor's, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, but the pastor's greatest joy or the pastor's greatest partnership uh, is a church that prays alongside of him. And based on Spurgeon, on that, that, uh, um, that story of Spurgeon, um, basically taking people down below to a, a prayer meeting of sometimes up to 400 people that were praying while the service was running up above, and the service up above could have been up to 20,000 mm -hmm. people at different stages. Um, but, but based on that, uh, we have pre, pre, prayers within our local church context who during the service um, are are praying specifically when the gospel is being proclaimed. Uh, I think of Molly, I think of Erica, and I think of Machi in particular. And the reasons why I think of them in particular is because they actually bow their heads and begin fervently praying um, whenever the gospel is going out during a sermon. And part of that was based on this, this idea of the church partnering with the pastor, even during the proclamation of the gospel, mm -hmm. and, and one way of partnering with them um, is through prayer, because prayer is powerful. We read about that in both the Old and the, te uh, the New Testament, a and prayer is necessary. Mm -hmm. It's something that we, we need to be doing. We need to be encouraging our church uh, to do. Um, in terms of a, a quarterly or a weekly prayer meeting, um, um, only a prayer meeting by Charles Spurgeon uh, is a good book recommendation yeah. for people to start with. Yeah, it is. I think it it is a bit hefty. Uh, if you want something shorter, John on Uquetcha's book, uh, Corporate Prayer, written in the Nine Marks series, is also really oh, helpful. I love those series. It's, They're so excellent. It's accessible. It's it's shorter. What he he basically walks you through the Lord's Prayer, and the corporate element uh, from that comes from our Father. Looking at the corporate element there, uh, another good book touching on the subject which you. Uh, looked at now uh, preaching and prayer by ryan mcgraw mm. it, it's also a, a little it's a thin little book um that you could you could probably download it online uh, yes. very helpful uh, probably really good to hand out to elders in your congregation as well excellent thank you so helpful pomesh if we can move um from uh, fritzel uh, and you quote, a, uh, you quote someone else called uh, Whitney that kind of brings the conversation into the 21st century and into the present challenges uh, that churches are facing. 
Uh, one of them is just the, um, the, the reality of individualism uh, within the Western world concept. And the other one is this reality of technological progress and all the benefits that it brings, you know, Bible on your phone and, you know, instant access via WhatsApp to prayer updates and stuff, but also the distraction that those kinds of things bring um, into, into our corporate reality, into, into our community. Um, do you want to just you know, talk about some of the challenges that we face as 21st century beings as it relates to prayer? Yeah, I think individualism is not just a problem we see in prayer meetings. I think it's uh, a problem which we see in the life of the church, generally speaking. Uh, I think one of the saddest realities which we're living through at the moment is how we can be a part of a, of a group of people and yet be isolated from one another. Mm. There was a book that was written, I think it's called 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. Mm. And one of the things the author highlighted there was uh, he observed that when people go to a restaurant with friends, a lot of the time they'll be on their phones speaking to people who aren't there. And what that's communicating is that there's a desire to be with people who aren't here rather than a desire to be with the people who are. And so what you're doing in that instance is that you're isolating yourself when you're in the context of a community. Yes. I think sometimes that can happen in church as well. Yeah. Technology drives us away from other people. And even though it gives us the illusion of connecting with people, yes. which is so, so strange. So individualism is not just something which we see in, in the church prayer meeting, but in society at large. But of course, it affects the church. Um, again, it's this idea of self-sufficiency. I can make it on my own. Uh, I don't need anybody around me, do, nor do I need people praying for me, nor do I need to pray for people. And so it, it drives us into ourselves where the gospel should drive us to Jesus. Mm. And how do we go to Jesus? Well, it is by the Spirit in prayer, calling out to him. Uh, so individualism, of course, it's, it's, a, it's a real challenge. Uh, but of course, with the, with the advent of technology, uh, and this touches on, an, on another point, which I'd, I'd like to highlight, if I may, is that technology has given us access to things which we historically wouldn't have access to, and one of those things being really good sermons. Yes. Well, so, in, in actual fact, you, you've now gone to what I thought was the best made point out of, um, out of all of these significant practical realities that you raise. Um, it struck me like a hammer when I read this paragraph um, because I recognize my need for my people, but I don't think that I've always articulated how important they are to me. Um, and, and you make this, this point of, of, of uh, well, I mean, you, 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 you've started to make this point now, of how we have divorced ourselves almost, or, or not so much divorced ourselves, but maybe <laughs> taken in more pastors into the mix. And our local church pastor has been taken off a pedestal, um, if, if that, uh, that, I mean, the analogy breaks down at some stage. Um, but, but, but just this, this need of a pastor for his people and the need of a people for their pastor in this relationship. Yes, I make the point that one of the things that technology has done is it has enabled us to have access to excellent biblical teaching. Mm. 
just maybe uh, public confession time, I suppose. But uh, during lockdown, one of the things that we did as a family is listen to other South African pastors. Mm. And we made that deliberate decision because all of us could name, you know, off, off our hands, excellent preachers. Yeah. And so it would be easy for us to go onto YouTube, type in their name, and, and listen to them. But we, we decided to listen to South African guys. And we were just so encouraged to see the caliber of preaching within our own country. Mark, yes. you were one of them, so <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll uh, praise God for his, his, uh, his, gift, his gifts to you. Um, but I was just so encouraged to hear how, how faithful men were to yes. the text of Scripture and applying the text to their congregation. But one of the things, and if, if, if I was a normal church member, one of the, the, the temptations I might have is, it's easy for me to listen to these guys online, but do I see my need for my own pastor? And am I praying for him to be a better preacher? Yes. And I, I think that's the I challenge. Love that. I that. I wish more people would pray for me to be <laughs> yeah. a better preacher. And, and I think that's, that's the Monday morning syndrome, isn't it? Yes. That pastor's experience. We've We've ministered the word of God on a, on a Sunday morning. We've poured our hearts out on a Sunday evening. We wake up on Monday morning and we think, what fruit will come of this? Mm. And, and there's almost like this real depression that hits. And, and it's something which I think many people aren't aware of. And yet we need our, our folk to be praying for us. We need our folk to be praying that we would be faithful students of the Word of God, that we would be filled with the Spirit as we uh, step up to the pulpit on a Sunday, that, like Paul says in, in Thessalonians, that we would preach the Word full of conviction and power. How does that come about? It's when our people pray. Mm. Uh, and we don't just need them to pray uh, uh, for us as, as pastors, but that, that, the, that the Spirit would help us to be better preachers. Yes. Um, and I, I don't know about you, but I always feel as though I need to be sharpening my skills. I always need to be growing in this task. Yes. Um, and, and I feel as though I'm going through one of those stages at the, at the moment, but we need our people praying for us. Because, again, it's not just a, a humanistic effort. Yeah. It's not just about tools of communication. It's a supernatural work, and we need the Spirit's aid as we go about doing this. You know, as you're talking, I'm, I'm just, I'm sinking with you. So there was a time about 11 years ago that I worked at Dimension Data as we were planting Crystal Park. And uh, it meant that I had to commute from Benoni all the way through to Bryanston uh, each morning. And uh, through that commute, it was about an hour and a half each way. Um, it meant that I could listen to three sermons every day for two years, which I did. Um, but very quickly, I stopped only listening to Americans, MacArthur, Piper, Sproul, um, Alistair Begg, and all the names that, that, that I would hope that many of the listeners are listening to. Um, and I started listening to South Africans, and I, I started with one South African, Martin Holt. Um, he had a sermon repository at Constantia Park Baptist Church, and I started listening to um, 
I, I might have exhausted his uh, that repository uh, over that two-year period. Um, and then I added to Martin, Charles de Kivett at Pretoria Central Baptist Church, who I've got a very close relationship <laughs> for, with um, and who I'll be joining in ministry uh, on the 1st of January. And then I started listening to Martin Morrison from Christchurch uh, in, um, in, in Midrand. And I was so encouraged by the excellence, just like you said, of listening to South African um, preachers to such an extent, and Parmesh, you're on this list, um, <laughs> that I created a list of South African preachers, uh, which anybody can access by in Google typing South African preachers or South African sermons, Crystal Park Baptist Church, and you'll find a, a repository of hundreds upon hundreds of, of South African preachers uh, from a relatively wide range of uh, theological backgrounds. No, actually, it's relatively narrow now that I think about it, um, but, but quite a broad range of people. Um, so I, I have sister churches to Crystal Park, which would include Midrand Chapel and Molitsane Baptist Church in Soweto. Um, and then I have Township Reformation churches, which would include Chris Mguni in Daviton and others. And I have Baptist Northern Association churches, where I have selected um, individuals, uh, individual churches that I'm in close contact with and know well um, from that group of Baptist Northern Association churches. And then Solar Five churches, which would ref which would be primarily Reformed Baptist churches, uh, including Masters guys. I have them on a separate list as well. Uh, Masters graduates and Christ Seminary graduates. And um, just over the years have been so, and then I've sorted them <laughs> by book of the Bible so that you can, if you're looking for sermons on a particular book of the Bible, you can find which of those preachers in those directories have preached um, on those sermons. Um, I didn't do all the work. I came up with the idea, but Claudie Deary, who was a staff intern here at Crystal Park, he put it all together and did a sterling job. And so there are, there are literally hundreds of sermons available. If you type in Crystal Park Baptist Church and then South African sermons or South African preachers, you should get, Google should take you straight to the, to the right page. Um, and I, I advocate that as a resource. But the main point wasn't South African preachers. The main point was local church pastors um, and South African preachers being a way of going from the international to the local. But then the point that you were making was just this, the importance of this relationship between a local church and their own pastor, this, this need that he has for his people and the need that his people have for him, um, speaking into their lives uh, with conviction uh, and with excellence and and maybe just an application for those who are listening as we come up to the hour um, is uh, folk be praying for your pastor be praying for the elders of your own local church um, when I pray for, with my son at night uh, we go through a prayer of praying adoration prayers and then we pray confession prayers and then we pray thanksgiving prayers and then when we pray supplication, prayers for ourselves and for others, we start off by praying for our family, for mommy and daddy and our sisters. Uh, and then second, we pray for our teachers, and that would include teachers at school, um, but it would also include Sunday school teachers at church and then the elders of our local church. Uh, and in actual fact, I don't just pray that with Thomas. When I go into my own personal prayer closet, I follow the same 
the, the same technique, this, the same prayer pattern, uh, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. And I start off by praying for my family and then praying for the elders of our local church, for Etienne. Uh, I've been praying for Charles and for Isaac and uh, uh, for Jabu uh, in Pretoria recently. I then pray for the government and I pray for those who are sick. And lastly, I pray for myself uh, that God would take me through the night. Um, but, but praying with our children for our local church pastors and teachers and Sunday school teachers and Bible study leaders is so important. I thought it was a great point. Um, we've now fleshed out the problem. In the second part of the hour, we're going to start off by looking at texts in the Pentateuch, which are helpful to point us toward corporate prayer um, uh, through various different mechanisms. Uh, and then we will shift gears and talk about some of the orthopraxis, what this looks like, and in particularly Christopraxis, which was a brand new word for me, and I'm looking forward to engaging you in it uh, regarding redemptive hermeneutics uh, after the break. We are going to be going to a break now. We're going to be listening to a song that is sung by Chanel Wink, uh, and the song's name, uh, 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 and we are looking forward to hearing that. Chanel Wink. Uh, uh, sings to us uh, in the with you. My name is Mark Penrith, and this is Table Talk with Mark. This morning, we are speaking to my friend Parmesh, and we are talking about the subject of corporate prayer. The song that you heard during the break um, was called There Is Only One by Chanel Wink. Um, thank you so much, DK, for keeping the lights on back at the station. number of people saying hi. I've noticed a large group of folk from Springs Baptist Church, uh, including Dirk van Sale uh, and a number of others saying hi to us um, via, I think Dirk is from Springs Baptist Church. Yeah, um, I saw him on Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> okay, saying, saying hi to us online and a number of people uh, into engaging with us. Um, both on WhatsApp and on Telegram. I want to read uh, one comment from Glenn Williams, who is a long-time listener and is involved at Makanya Theological uh, College. Always great to have you with and us, And uh, he's a Glenn. member of our church. And <laughs> a member of Witchwood Baptist Church. There you go. It's great to have you with us, Glenn. Uh, he says, Prayer in a service is often handled like a professional scene change in a play. We close our eyes and someone prays, and then we open our eyes again, and the band are in place, uh, or something like that. <laughs> and secondly, when the pastor prays at the end of his sermon, you hear Bible bags zip shut, and people packing things away like it's time to prepare to go home instead of time to pray. Sometimes I think the importance of prayer in the church is lacking. Yeah, Glenn, uh, I think two very, very well-made points. I, I, I certainly... Um, uh, sink in my heart with both of them. Uh, Jose Dematos uh, says on Facebook, uh, as corporate prayer is a crucial issue in the church, how can we read the dissertation and uh, what book do you advise in the subject? So I think the book that was, a number of books have been advised and I certainly will ask um, because Parmesh has read so much on this topic, I will ask him for his kind of top five uh, at the end of the show, Jose. Um, but in terms of the dissertation, is it available online? And if so, um, how can folk get hold of it? I'm, to be honest, I'm not sure. I'll have to investigate and let you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I will investigate before the end of the show. And if it is available, I will tell you how to get it because it certainly is well worth reading. Pomesh, 
as we come into the second hour of the show, we've now kind of fleshed out the need or, or some of the problems that we see within the contemporary church regarding corporate prayer, some of the obstacles. We've spoken about pastors themselves lack, lacking mm -hmm. equipping. We've spoken about some of the realities of the Western mind and technology advancements. And then we've spoken about just some of the realities of, of church as we find it in the 21st century, the proliferation of programs and those kinds of things. I want us now to go back to Scripture and to start to build over the next half an hour. Um, start to build a exegesis of what corporate prayer looks like, particularly in the Pentateuch, because those are the passages that you looked at. Um, how you pace yourself is entirely up to you, brother. Um, but we've got about 30 minutes to do it, and I'll, I'll keep on giving us uh, some time uh, indications uh, as, as we go through it. Um, but maybe you'd like to start by not even looking at the text, but but the kind of the presuppositional hermeneutic that you bring to the text. I, I'd like us just to talk about that a little bit because it's something that you and I have been talking about for for years now. <laughs> Thanks. I think it it may be a bit obvious to state this, but whenever we read the Bible, we're all interpreting all the time. Yes we may not necessarily have a particular model that we can articulate or follow some kind of chart, but just as you read the Bible, you're interpreting. The question is then, how do we interpret? And of course, there's different ways in which people do that. For some people, they will adopt an impressionistic reading of the text. So, so, so very similar to what we might call impressionistic art, we will read the text of Scripture and based upon what emotional change we may experience, a particular word or a particular verse may be caricaturized, it may be blown out of proportion, and we may miss what the author is trying to do with that particular passage. Another way that we can read the text is uh, almost in a very imperatival way. Uh, so reading the Bible through a list of commands. Mm, moralism. Yeah, would be another, another term we might use. So we'll read scripture and we may begin with a noble attitude. We want to know what God wants us to do. Mm. That's a good question to ask. But we go directly to the commands and we try to figure out, well, how should we do this? How do we live in this way? Now, both of those approaches are void of the gospel because all scripture points towards Jesus Christ. And so we have to then adopt a method whereby we're reading the Bible in a, I'm going to use the word in a Christocentric way, so centered around Christ. But then how do we do that? Do we then go and find Jesus under every nook and cranny? Do we look for secret codes hidden in Scripture whereby we can find him? And that's where we need to be responsible. We, we have to ask, what is the uh, aim or what is the scope of the Bible? And, and how does each passage within this book uh, lead us towards Jesus? So I think it was, I may be mistaken here, I think it was R.C. Sproul who once said, that uh, everything in the New Testament is contained in the Old. But the Old Testament is a, is a dimly lit room. Jesus turns on the light, mm. and so we're able to see him. Yes. 
Now, when we talk about hermeneutics, and, and hermeneutics is the, the method that we use to read the passage. It's, it's the rules that we embrace in order to make sure that we are doing this in a responsible way. And that responsible way is, oh, that's good wording. It's, it's actually taken from Baptist principles. Um, I often talk, and we've even spoken on, on the show a number of times, about a literal hermeneutic, a literal grammatical historical hermeneutic, where we take into con context, where we take into consideration the historical setting that a text is placed in, we take into account the grammar of the, of the verse, of the passage, of the entire chapter, of even the book, and we take into, because then you talking about like genre and those kinds of things. And you look for a literal interpretation. In other words, God meant what he said. He wrote what he meant. And we understand what he meant. We then get the authorial intent. And that's what we apply. You were talking about a slightly different um, hermeneutic at the in the opening chapters of the book. You spoke about something being a literal, grammatical, redemptive hermeneutic. Did I get that right? And if so, do you want to just explain what that is? Yeah, so I, uh, to be very careful with uh, wording, I've called my approach a historical, linguistic, yes, redemptive that's right. approach. You dropped the literal. <laughs> <laughs> As you so, were, carry on. <laughs> so um, you're taking a stab at me now. <laughs> but um, the reason why I've adopted this, I might call it a three legged approach. When we read scripture, the historic grammatical method, allows us to understand what a text means within its context. Yes. But then the question arises, how do we understand the relationship between books of the Bible? Mm. Because we would all acknowledge a dual authorship in Scripture. There's the human author, whether it be Moses or Hosea or Paul, but behind the human author is the Holy Spirit, who inspires them to write in such a way that it is infallible and inerrant. So there is a continuity between each book of the Bible and its logical connection with the next. And so this is where this third leg comes in. Different people have called it different things. Uh, Louis Burkhoff, in his book, Principles of Interpretation, calls it a, a theological interpretation. Uh, I've called it a redemptive interpretation. The reason why I've done that is because uh, of Luke 24, all scriptures point toward Jesus Christ. The law and the prophets uh, point to him. Uh, all of the Bible leads us to Christ. And so when we read the Bible, we're not just looking for what does the text mean in its context. We're also asking the question, how does this text fit into God's redemptive purposes. Mm. And so, I, I mean, if I think of the work of David Helm, um, I've been quite involved over the last couple of years with uh, Charles Simeon Trust. Uh, and there he talks about, you know, starting off by asking the question, well, what does the text say? Um, and then building up to understanding, well, what does the text then mean um, in terms of authorial intent? Um, but the work isn't done until through theological reflection you ultimately get to Christ. And there are valid mechanisms of getting to Christ and there are invalid mechanisms of getting to Christ. Um, am I right in saying in terms of, 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 of what you're talking about, in terms of this redemptive 
leg of your hermeneutics. It would be a mechanism of using biblical theology to make sure that you are making valid connections between, in this case, specifically the Pentateuch and the person of Jesus Christ. Yeah, of course, as we, as we even think about the term biblical theology, there's also tools within biblical theology in which you do that. Uh, so, for example, in my dissertation, I, use, uh, I restricted myself to three ways. Uh, the first way was text disclosure. So that's basically when a, an author in the New Testament quotes a text in the oh, Old Testament. Yes. We ask yeah. ourselves, well, what happened in the Old Testament and why is he using it in this particular place in the New? I love the writing of Abner Chow on that particular topic. It was the first time that I, I started to wrap my head around some of those, although I realized that there might be some slight nuances, nuances yeah. there. So a good example of that will be uh, in Matthew where he says, out of Egypt I called my son. <laughs> that is a uh, complex one. <laughs> yeah. uh, where he quotes Hosea, and in that instance, Hosea is looking back yes. on, on Exodus. I saw you dealt with that comprehensively um, in, in your dissertation. Uh, that's, so that's the first way, text disclosure. The second way, uh, we might, the second leg we might use is something called typology. So in the Old Testament, we have a figure or an individual who is revealed to us. And then in the New Testament, that figure or that individual is fulfilled in Christ. Um, again, another example of that might be uh, the uh, person of Adam. Paul in Romans 5 says that Christ is the new Adam, the one who comes to reverse uh, what uh, Adam had done. And the third uh, tool that I use is something called context disclosure. So as you read not just a verse or a person, but as you read of uh, in a, what we might call a section or pericope in the Old Testament, uh, the context there will reveal something about uh, the Messiah who is to come. So now you, you just mentioned this whole first Adam, Adam, but you actually didn't mention first Adam, Adam, Moses, uh, Joshua. I can't remember the entire train that you used, David. Um, some of your work as you go through the various different topics actually got me so excited <laughs> about the Pentateuch and how, and how various different things related to Jesus Christ, including, interestingly enough, because this is something you and I have been talking about for the longest of time, but your use of the covenants and just showing how Christ <laughs> fulfills these various different things. I, I really enjoyed working through this, and I, and I want to give you the opportunity to work through some texts um, uh, uh, from the Old Testament uh, in terms of the use of prayer um, in God's word uh, I think, I mean now I'm, now I'm trying to stretch my mind back many weeks when I read but I think the first use of corporate prayer was in Genesis chapter 8 that you referenced, might have been 6 but I, I'm sure it was a, an even number. Just close, Genesis 4 Genesis 4, that was Enoch um, called on the name of the Lord, uh, yes uh, yeah. in terms of that list do you want to just start to work through some texts? Show us how they relate both to prayer, how they connect to Jesus, and, and then we can, we can, as we come to the end of the show, just talk about, well, what would this look like in practice in terms of uh, orthopraxy, orthopathy, um, and orthodoxy, which is a, a topic which you dealt with after you dealt with yeah. the texts. Uh, so perhaps, th and, and this was quite revolutionary for me, when I began studying this subject, the first prayer, as I've defined it, begins in Genesis 4. Now, of course, there's a whole conversation that, that exists 
which wrestles with whether or not the conversation that takes place in the Garden of Eden, whether that is strictly prayer or not. So uh, rather than getting caught up in that, I just went to the first place where it's mentioned sure. outside I, the Garden I, of Eden. I love the idea of thinking of, of man in, in, in untested perfection before sin, praying mm. with God and it actually being walking in the cool of the day, just having a conversation. I, I like the, I mean, it kind of is a romantic kind of prayer idea, but, but I, I, I agreed with you in terms of Genesis 4 being the, the first use of probably corporate prayer. Yeah. So let's just read that text together. It's in Genesis 4, 25 and 26. Uh, these are the words. It's found in my Bible. This is the ESV. You may be using a, a different version. But uh, there we find these words. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also was born a son, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Mm. Now, this phrase, to call upon the name of the Lord, is to call out to God. It is to speak to Him, to fulfill His promise. Now, what is fascinating about Genesis 4 is where these words are found. In Genesis 4, verse 25 and 26, these are the last words of Genesis chapter 4. And so we have to ask the question, why do we find these words here? Is Moses primarily concerned with this lineage of Adam and Eve? Now, and, and this is where we have to ask these very interesting questions. How else could he have done it? Because in chapter 5, we have a genealogy. Yes. We have a record of Adam's descendants. So Moses is not merely concerned with uh, speaking about a son who's going to replace Abel, who's going to be the, the line through which Jesus comes. There's something quite unique that's taking place here. Now, of course, I would say that there's two things that, that take place in Genesis 4 which add meaning to what we find at the end of the chapter. And the first is the promise that has been given to uh, Eve, that she will be the uh, the one to uh, through whom the serpent crusher will come, this seed who will reverse the effects of what Satan has done. Yes. And the second is, of course, the uh, idea to fill the earth and multiply it. How else is that going to happen without children? And so Genesis 4 begins in a rather interesting way. When Eve conceives... Her words reflect a degree of, of pride. She says in verse 1, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. The emphasis is on her work and not on God's goodness. And so there's a sense in which she even feels that, that Cain is going to be the one to crush the serpent's head. But instead of crushing the serpent's head, to use a little bit of literary freedom, he crushes his brother's head. He kills his own brother. And so we begin to realize very quickly that, that the line, the, the serpent crusher, is not Cain as he, as he gives himself over to this sin. But then what's interesting is that as the chapter unfolds, there's something remarkable that takes place. There's this, there's this great pursuit when it comes to technology yeah. as Cain's descendants begin to develop. We, we see some remarkable things there. We see that 
humanity has moved out of a garden and they are now there in a city. We see that in verse 17. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch and he built a city and he called the name of that city after his son, Enoch. Yes. So that, that's quite remarkable. We see as well that uh, there's uh, technology that exists when it comes to um, forging instruments in verse 22. Uh, we see that, that Tubal Cain, he was a forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. So it's not just music that is now created, it's, it's working with metals as well. Mm. So uh, for all intents and purposes, we might say that as Genesis 4 unfolds, we might even argue that, that the creation mandate is being fulfilled. They're, they're multiplying, they're growing. Technology seems to be booming. Uh, but they're away from the Lord. Mm. And so what we see here with Seth and, and it's quite fascinating if you, if you look at this in the Hebrew, when it says at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord, the word people there is a different word in the Hebrew compared to what word has been used to describe humanity up until this point. Hmm. There is something remarkable that is taking place now. Uh, even though technological advancements are taking place, even though there's a great pursuit uh, that's go, going on in the world, it is at this point that people call upon the name of the Lord. And why are they calling upon him? Well, they're calling upon him, at least in this context, for the seed to come, for the one who will reverse the effects of sin, for the one who will restore them back to God. And of course, we might even draw some practical application from this, we might even say, in light of all the development that is taking place, in light of the busyness that seems to be going on in the rest of the world, the problem is people are not calling out to God. Mm. And, and I think it connects, I think, very closely to how we can conduct ourselves as the church. We can be very busy doing great things for the Lord, developing programs and being very creative. But are we calling upon God to fulfill His promises? Well, I mean, of course, and I can already see it might be very profitable if uh, you and I have another chat on this topic because uh, there's no ways we're going to be able to exhaust every single um, prayer in the Pentateuch over the next half an hour or so. Um, but, but immediate application uh, that one might have for a local church in 2021 is how much effort, time and energy we've placed into building our technological advancements, whether that be YouTube channels, Facebook channels, the ability to live stream, do Zoom, you know, on the fly, whatever that might be. And in many ways necessary in order to communicate to our, our time and our age and, and, and matters that I'm on the cutting edge of. And yet, what is our primary calling? And, and it comes down to those significant issues that you raised at the beginning of the show um, in terms of, you know, a proliferation of activities and programs, and yet the primary means of grace are being left uh, on the table. Um, and in this case, calling out to God, being a, a mechanism of corporate prayer, something that we should be doing, and yet we have maybe usurped its, prim its primacy um, for secondary matters. Um, and there does, there needs to be an adjustment uh, 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 that reflects, in actual fact, the biblical mandate. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, again, the, and, and I want to emphasize this, we're not saying programs and methods are wrong. We're not saying having a YouTube channel is wrong. 
these are good things, and I think God will use them, and he has used them uh, to extend his kingdom. I, I think now more than ever before, there's more sermons on YouTube than perhaps other things uh, because COVID has, has moved us in that direction. But it's, it's when we do these things outside of pursuing God, uh, again, it's as these things eclipse God that they become uh, a problem. Yes. Okay, where to from here? We, we've uh, sat in Genesis chapter 4. Uh, where's the next place that we then go to? Well, we could go to Exodus chapter 2. Uh, I think this is a, another wonderful passage. I think it's very, it's a heartwarming passage yes. when I read it. So if, uh, if Genesis 4 amazed me, Exodus 2 comforted me. Yeah. Uh, and of course, we know the context. The nation of Israel is in Egypt. They are slaves at this point in time. Their hardship is uh, increasing. And again, it's at the end of chapter 2 that we read the following words. In those during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Uh, those words just warmed my heart. Um, I think often, and here's my sort of pastoral application for that. I think so often when we go through trials and tribulations, we can feel isolated and alone. And we must remember in those times, God remembers his covenant in Christ. God sees us and God knows. He knows the suffering that we go through as individuals. He knows the suffering and the trials that we go through as a church and and again remember that's the the subject here it's corporate prayer it's not just uh, us isolated from others but god sees us as his covenant community and he knows uh, he knows what we go through and and maybe just to say to any listeners listening in that are interested in the topic of prayer or are struggling um regarding uh, present circumstances, uh, just life circumstances. We mm. are living in difficult times. If you want to be encouraged, type in Exodus chapter 2 and go and look for a sermon by any of the great preachers that we have listed, uh, whether they be preachers abroad or preachers in South Africa. Exodus chapter 2 really does include very, very encouraging uh, so it just makes for very encouraging preaching. So whether it be a Piper, a MacArthur Sproul, or an Alistair Begg, if any of those have preached on the book of Exodus, I'm sure MacArthur hasn't. Uh, he sticks to the New Testament, um, but the rest of them probably have. Um, or if it be a South African, whether that be Martin Morrison, uh, Charles de Kivett is currently preaching through Exodus. I know my friend Rocky Stevenson is currently preaching through the book of Exodus, um, as well as others. I think we've mentioned Martin Holt uh, and others. Go and, go and take a look for um, Exodus chapter 2 and sermons preached from any of those men. I have no doubt that you'll come away very, very encouraged. Um, glorious that we can pray um, to God. What interests me about this prayer, and I'm surprised I didn't realize it in the past, is that you pointed out that A, it was corporate, but B, it was the nation. Um, and you, you made some of that uh, in your dissertation. Do you want to maybe just talk to that a little bit? Yeah, so this is what's really fascinating with this passage is, is how I brought it into the New Testament. Uh, 
because uh, through context disclosure or through understanding the context of what's going on here, uh, I then looked at Matthew chapter 2, that passage where uh, Matthew says, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, again, that's a very technical passage. Lots of scholars have different opinions on the matter. Uh, But what I wanted to show is how the movement of Egypt, uh, sorry, of of Israel out of Egypt, that movement is now fulfilled in Jesus Christ, where he becomes the representative head of the nation. And their hopes and their expectations for freedom and liberation and peace are all now found not in a place— but a person, Jesus Christ. And that invitation comes to us as believers as well. So our hopes, uh, the redemption from slavery to sin and death is found now and located in a person, not just in a thing or an activity or a ritual, but in Christ himself. I can't now remember if it was you that made the point or somebody else that made the point regarding Matthew's opening, his first chapter, Um, And that being a genealogy that really links Jesus all the way back to Abraham and creates this this link, this chain. Um, In fact, I do. I think I think it was I think it actually was in this dissertation, but it might not have been on this text that you were making that point. Um, But but again, uh, in terms of linking it to Matthew, um, uh, just this idea of linking Jesus as the fulfillment of these promises, of these great... I think it was uh, in the section where you're talking about covenants, covenants. Uh, and you're linking from Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, uh, through to Jesus and making a couple of other points. Uh, I enjoyed that about your work, by the way, um, uh, very specifically. I, 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 do, I do have um, maybe a slightly sharper and more narrow... Um, hermeneutic approach both to the Pentateuch as well as to New Testament passages uh, to you Um, but where I did see a number of synergies where you speak very much in the Christocentric um, and sometimes that's an aversion amongst my narrowest tribe um, I did see these wonderful links to biblical theology which sometimes we fall short in and and I loved those links I loved it um, in your discussion uh, about Matthew linking to out of Egypt you called my son. I loved it uh, in the discussion in terms of the opening lines of, of Matthew's gospel and the genealogy. I found them very, very helpful uh, even to my own reading. We need to plow on. I'd love us to get to at least another, uh, another text uh, this morning before we get to very, very practical things. Because uh, again, I opened the show up by saying that your, um, that your writing has literally impacted the way that I've been praying. Um, and it's excited me, um, and, and I, I want us to get there because I think that there is massively practical implications for the way that fathers lead prayers for children and the way that pastors lead prayers in pulpits and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and amongst their congregations. Uh, and I really want to give you the opportunity to excite people um, and move them towards deeper, richer uh, corporate prayer. Let's... Uh, spend some time then in, in the book of Deuteronomy as one last uh, passage where the Lord says to the nation of Israel, uh, what nation is there like you that has the privilege of calling upon the name of the Lord? Now, if you find it first, I will uh, be encouraged. It's in Gen- uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4. I'm um, yeah. Okay, I'm trying to find the... 
the exact verse. So we've got the call to obedience from verse 1, uh, ending up with the Ten Commandments upon which he wrote, writes the stone tablets. Yeah, and so you've got the worship of the true God for the rest of the chapter. Yeah. So it's in verse 7. Uh, again, it's a, a God is speaking, or Moses is speaking to the nation as he says there, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? Whenever we call upon him, mm. that's that's a fascinating use of language. Yes. Because if you were the nation of Israel at this point in time, on the precipice of entering into the promised land, logically speaking, I would have phrased it differently. I would have said, "Well, you know, what great nation is there? Is God is so near to them that has delivered them up to this point?" We yes. would look at expressions of power yes. and might in delivering the people. But here Moses says, what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? And he directs them towards prayer whenever we call upon him. Yes. And again, it's, we need to think of, of this as prayer, not as some sort of mechanism, but as a privilege. God has so bound himself to his people that he will listen to their prayers. It's not an if, it's not a condition, it's not a ritual that we need to perform beforehand before we pray. He listens to us. Yeah. He has, I'll use the language, covenantally bound himself to his people that he cannot but hear. Uh, that is, that is the, the covenant fulfilling God that we know. Now bring this passage in Deuteronomy. Um, through the lens of the whole of Scripture to the person of Jesus Christ. So, again, this, is, this forms part of my, my broader hermeneutic here. Uh, and I know that you and I disagree on this <laughs> a little bit. So, uh, as I work through this, this passage, one of the questions which I wanted to ask is, who is Israel? Uh, and, of course, amongst scholars and pastors, this does become a, a sensitive subject. And so once we understand who this nation is, then we can understand uh, the privilege uh, that we have. And the way that I did this, again, is working through the Gospel of Matthew, asking this question, well, well who, is, who is Israel? There were a number of clues that uh, led us to an answer. So one of the clues is found in the genealogy where Jesus speaks about both Abraham and David uh, being the forefathers of Christ. Mm. Now, Matthew does that not only by linking his gospel to the Old Testament, but showing that there's a, a particular goal is it, that is in mind. So, of course, Abraham, we know, is the great father of the nation. Yes. And David is the we might say, archetypical king. He's the one who yes. represents uh, Israel. So we see that these two individuals, one who's the father of the nation and the other one who's the representative of the nation, pointing towards Christ now, who's going to be the, the, the seed of faith. The fulfillment. The fulfillment, yeah, yeah. Of, of Abraham as well as of David. Uh, but not only do we have genealogical clues, we have geographical clues as well. And we've mentioned uh, the movement that Jesus experiences 
uh, from Bethlehem to Egypt and then back into, uh, into Israel. Again, Matthew's doing something there. He's showing us that through this journey that Jesus takes, he represents more than just himself. He is the anticipation of the hopes of this nation. Again, we look at other passages like when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan. Uh, very similar overlaps that Israel itself experienced while it uh, was in journeying to the promised land and of course spending 40 years in the wilderness. Now there's numerous clues that we find in Matthew which lead us to the conclusion that the identity of this nation is to be found in Jesus Christ. And so some scholars use the language of saying that Jesus is the true Israel. But then how does that apply to us? It applies to us through a concept which we call union with Christ. So as we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we share in his identity. And identity is not just an individual identity, it's a corporate identity. So we might say that the church, the new covenant people of God, share in this identity in Christ uh, who is the true Israel. And so that's why, as believers in the church today, we can read Deuteronomy 4 and verse 7 and say that we share in this privilege. God is close to us and God hears us when we pray because of our identity in Christ, uh, who, who is the true Israel. So we're actually not that far away from each other uh, on, this, on this point in that I would also say we are benefactors of the new covenant through Christ. Uh, that we are grafted in. I guess on this particular top, on this particular verse, uh, I might look at the word um, a God who is near to us. Uh, and if I was wanting to, in a valid way, um, apply my my biblical theology and get to Christ, I might also go to Matthew. And I'm thinking on the fly here, but I'd yeah. probably go to Matthew 28 uh, and read of Jesus saying, "All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me." him sending out his disciples, and then uh, as the close of that great and glorious book, saying, um, and behold, and I'm quoting from the King James, um, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And the proximity of Christ to us, uh, I think, would be a valid way of, of getting to Christ. Um, another valid way of getting to Christ, and you had referred to Acts chapter 2, uh, as well as other parts of Acts uh, in the text. I think you also referred to the prayers in Acts chapter 4 and a couple of other uh, other um, prayers in Acts um, in your dissertation, um, but but just the importance of the name uh, of the Lord and the name of Christ and just this wonderful mechanism of approaching the throne of God through the person of Jesus Christ and the way that the, the, and how that has been made open to us through the person of Christ. I, I didn't feel that we were that far away from each other as I was reading of all the clues uh, that yeah. you had put. I think you had six of them in total. I can't remember exactly. Um, I found that I found that chapter really interesting. Uh, I wish we had more time. And Teresa has also noted that uh, you really need to come on the show again uh, in order to engage uh, on some of the topics that we can only just but touch on. Um, you spent quite a bit of time talking about covenants, but I kind of want to move us yeah. through covenants and get us. Uh, and by the way, I thought that 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 discussion was really interesting as well. Um, the gloss over the first three so that we arrived at the Abrahamic, um, the, 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 the missing Palestinian covenant, um, but, but the discussion around the Mosaic covenant, I thought you made some wonderful connections 
um, in your dissertation. I, I certainly was built up as I considered the topic um, afresh. Where I'd love us to land um, and to talk now is through, you discussed words which I'm very familiar of. You quoted David Debrain, who's a South African uh, author, um, excellent author on the topic of worship. Um, I certainly have been really built up by listening to quite long sermon series that he delivered on the subject of worship. Um, when I first arrived at Crystal Park, I was trying to figure out, well, what would worship here look like? Um, you know, I'm a new pastor, literally a new pastor at a new church, um, and we could set up things from scratch. Um, and David spoke into our, our process really well. Um, but David uses these words, um, orthodoxy being right belief, orthopraxy being right practice and then he introduced me to a word i hadn't heard before which was orthopathy being the way things feel and he uses it in the context of worship that you know our, our song should reflect the words which are being spoken and and the way things feel um should be in sync with with all the rest our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy you introduced me to a brand new word which i hadn't heard before i don't think you coined it but Christopraxis, okay? In other words, uh, our praxis should be Christ-focused. Um, you've already introduced the topic which you used to make the connection to Christopraxis, being this union with Christ, which reminded me of a very dear friend of mine, uh, Patrick Payne, who always would talk about uh, us being in Christ and our union with Christ, informing our worship and our praxis. And uh, actually, when I read it, I, I had a big smile <laughs> on my face thinking of, uh, of Patrick. He passed away last year. Um, but but I, I would like you to just to spend some time talking about Christopraxis as, as you understand it and, and as it impacts local churches and, and yeah, uh, our, 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 the way that we worship and prayer in particular. Thanks. So I think, uh, let me uh, add the corrective first. Often when we think about orthodoxy, orthopraxy, and orthopathy, we tend to think of those things very linearly or logically. Yes. And so we tend to separate them into these bubbles. So we have to have right doctrine, and we focus on right doctrine, and yes. then we, by implication and extrapolation, move to right practice, and then we very carefully then work on our emotions. And I felt that it was very cognitive, um, just intellectual. Whereas I think we need to understand that these are not separate things, but there's a great degree of overlap. But I use the word Christopraxy to highlight that when it comes to Christian practice, we must remember that it is the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit sent by Christ in the life of the believer and the life of the church. Yeah. And so practice is not merely something which we do by uh, implication or extrapolation, but it is something which we do by the power and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. So when we think about prayer, we must realize that prayer is not just the speaking of words in a way that makes sense to us and those around us. The act of prayer is something which is enabled and empowered by the Spirit of Christ as we engage in this activity, and of course not just in our own lives as individuals, but in the life of the church. And I think that's how it becomes a life-giving uh, activity for us. Uh, I mean, I just wanted to come in there and just say, I, I think that this was very helpful to me in terms of your content. Um, 
was uh, sometimes our prayer becomes, prayer life becomes rote. Sometimes our um, prayer praxis within the context of the local church um, becomes so, um, so mechanical and so expected uh, that it loses this spiritual dynamic. And for me, the big takeaway from the book was, again, the reintroduction of the Holy Spirit into prayer, which kind of seems so obvious. But you, you made it so well within the context of corporate prayer in particular. And I found that so helpful. And when I think of corporate prayer, I do think of those umbrellas. I think of the church. I think of the family. Um, I think of different ways that, I mean, you, you spoke of the nation um, uh, in your work. I, I first felt the corporate prayers within my local family changing as I recognized that this can't be wrote, um, that my prayers need to be spirit-empowered um, and Christ-centered, even when I was praying for things as mundane as supper, breakfast, or lunch. Um, and, and I felt that quite helpful, and my heart was really warmed in terms of direct application uh, of your work. Yes, I think that's, uh, you're right. I think that's something that's missing from the motive behind this. We can, uh, and, I, and I, I highlighted this in my paper, I said that we often reduce prayers to three things. The one is the imperative, God commands me to do this. And so it becomes a burden. The, um, the pragmatic, well, this is what God Tells me will that tells me what will happen when I pray, so I'll do it because of the benefit, mm. or the exemplary. So look at these great characters in the Bible, and see how they pray, and so therefore we should pray like them. Uh, whereas I'm saying, well, actually the motive for prayer needs to be our identity in Christ. This is who we are. But then to also recognize that who we are is a result of a supernatural work in our lives. So when we pray together. We're reflecting not just a human exercise, but something which reflects this great work which God has done amongst us. Mm. And so in a prayer meeting, and just to speak about the context of a prayer meeting, and that's why the title of the, of the dissertation was Corporate and Representative Prayer. Yes. When we're in a prayer meeting, when someone prays, they're not just representing themselves, they're representing a community of believers. And that community of believers has, is only there because God has made it so. And that is a, an incredible thing to think that despite our backgrounds and our cultures and our uh, 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 backgrounds, this individual is representing me before God. And I'm upholding them by the Spirit before God. It's, it's, it's a wonderful thing when that happens. Yeah. You know, Pomesh, uh, a couple of more people have uh, come in through WhatsApp and on Facebook to say uh, you really do need to come in again and talk about practical corporate prayer. Uh, Jean Vitbank is another person who's made the same comment. Uh, and thank you so much to those who are listening in, who commented and encouraged as we were going through the content uh, this morning. I really do appreciate you. Um, I love uh, interacting and, uh, and engaging with you. I certainly have loved in engaging and interacting with Pomesh. Pomesh, I, I want to give you just like two minutes, brother. Um, as we've gone through the content today, is there a particular point you'd like to highlight that you really believe uh, kind of uh, 
crystallizes uh, the concept of corporate prayer and what you have learned. Um, and are there any uh, resources that you believe someone listening in, a member listening in, or a pastor listening in, might really benefit from, uh, from, from tackling? And I couldn't find uh, your dissertation online, okay. and so I'm looking forward to you publishing it one day online. Well, if you, you can upload the PDF on your website if you want to and make it Great. available. So, uh, distillation of this, I would just say, from the words of the Lion King, remember who you are. You are my son. Yeah. And I think if, if Christians <laughs> remember that, I mean, uh, remembering that, that's what God says to us, that we are his children. Yes. And he calls us to pray. Um, and that is made possible because of what Jesus Christ has done. And there's, this, there's a wealth of richness that comes into that as we read the Old Testament. But just to say to anyone who's listening to this, one of the most encouraging things that you can do for your pastor is to go to the prayer meeting. Yes. Uh, if you can't make it to a prayer meeting, send your pastor a message and tell him that, you, that you're praying for him. You have no idea how much that means None to your pastor. I mean, uh, it's unbelievably uh, a wonderful application. It, for yeah, it is a shot of adrenaline of, of encouragement for your yeah. pastor. It is just so, so wonderful. And then books, just to say, again, only a prayer meeting by uh, Charles Spurgeon is excellent. Uh, there's another little book um, written by, I think it's uh, John Miller. It's a little green book on, on the life of Charles Spurgeon. And the first chapter is on prayer. Mm. That chapter is, is probably the one which I read the most in terms of warming my heart to pray. It is mm. incredible. Um, then also Ryan McGraw's book on uh, uh, preaching and prayer, again, to show the relationship between the two is excellent. And then John Lonnie uh, uh corporate prayer is, is really good as well. E.M. Bounds is he's good when it comes to... Um, Warming your heart to pray, not necessarily on the subject of, of corporate prayer, but he's very good. And Wayne Mack wrote a book called Reaching the Ear of God. Yes. That is also excellent. I you quoted it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, brother, thank you so much for joining me this morning. I've really appreciated talking through this. Obviously, I appreciated reading your dissertation as well. And I am looking forward to engaging and chatting with you again in the future. Listeners, our prayers always, each and every week, goes out to all the elders and to the deacons holding the line in local churches, as well as to our missionaries who serve in foreign fields. Our prayers and much respect goes to first responders, our police, our defense force, and to those who dispense justice in our country, our firefighters, our paramedics, our nation's nurses, as well as all our nation's medical personnel, as well as correctional facility officers. You have been listening to Table Talk with me, your host, Mark. We're going to be going to news shortly. Before we do, we're going to be listening to Celebrate by Janine Krobler. Until next week, Friday, walk wisely, live holy, and testify zealously to Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.